We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something that both started before us and reaches beyond us. This summer, we look to the entire Bible to see God's mission in the world and how He calls His people to join Him in it. As we as a church look to beginning a new congregation, we turn towards the scriptures to see how God moves us out on mission. Join us this summer for a missional conversation. All right, kids ages three, pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, if you have a Bible, you can open it to uh, the book of Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. Probably about, I don't know, a little over halfway through your Bible. Uh, we're in chapter 49 of Isaiah, just one verse this morning, but, uh, but jam-packed with stuff for us. This summer, like I, uh, like I said earlier, we are taking a few months to talk about what theologians call the Missio Dei, which, you know, if you put something in Latin, it immediately gains more credit, right? Um, it just means the mission of God. Uh, and w- what it... What it what that is speaking to is the fact that the Bible teaches that God is on mission in the world and, and that he calls his people to join him in that. In other words, missions is not something we do overseas, although it also happens there. It's something we do every day, here, in our neighborhoods, with our friends, with our families, in our workplaces. Missions is something that is just a part and parcel to being a Christian. is supposed to shape our lives. And last week we looked at Abraham's encounter with God. Some of you will remember that, right? That uh, God called him to himself to send him out. That that was part of what that was all about. That we saw that when we have an encounter with the living God, when we encounter Jesus, we, are, we, are, we become a sent people. It's not, a, it's, it's not something that becomes optional. It just is. This week we look at the interesting question of what God's purpose is in all of this. So, if you have your place, we're in Isaiah 49. If you'd stand with me in honor of God's word, as we, as we do that, that's our habit here. If you're new, before the sermon, it's a way to simply acknowledge, it, using our bodies, using our posture, that, uh, that it is God that is speaking. This isn't a book that the church just kind of picked for itself. It, it is a book through which God's people hear the voice of their shepherd. It lays claim on us. And so as the word is read, let's, let's hear it in that way this morning. Isaiah 49, 6. He says, that is God, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. But I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord God, into this time we just ask that you would speak. No one in this place needs to hear from me. Everyone here, including myself, need to hear from you. So, Holy Spirit, would you come and open our ears that we might hear, open our minds that we might understand, open our hearts that we might receive what you, the Spirit, says to the church today. Pray that you'd meet us wherever we're at. Some of us are coming into this room full of joy. Others of us are are coming full of lament because this week, uh, and especially the last three or four days, have just been one of sorrow and wondering where you are. And so we pray that you would meet us in the midst of that. You would walk with us. And that as you walk with us, you would lead us back to yourself. God, preach your gospel to us. Let Christ and what he has done come to the fore and let 
everything else fall by the wayside. We ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Have a seat. So uh, it was kind of alluded to in that video, but um, I'm, I'm what they call a church planter, which is churchy speak for someone who goes and starts a new church. And some of you are new to Holy Cross, you don't realize this. So we, uh, you know, six years ago, almost seven, it'll be seven in October, but six years ago, uh, we just got started as a church. So we're still fairly young in elementary school, as it, as it, as it is with churches. Um, Ten years ago was, was when I got into vocational ministry. And ten years ago, I would have never considered church planting. Never. Not in a million years. I wanted simply to build up the church. Focus on Christians. Gather them together. Make sure they had good teaching. In fact, that's what I thought the church was supposed to be about. That's what I thought God was about. If you're a Christian and you're here this morning, you can probably relate to that. And you can be honest. It's okay. That's what we often think. This is what the church is for, right? We gather together other believers. We pour into them. That's the whole point. Um, and and that's, that's okay. We, as Americans, we understand how institutions are supposed to work, and that's just how institutions are supposed to work. You give your time, you give your money, you give your effort to an institution, you're supposed to get payback, right? That's the way it works. William Temple, who was once the Archbishop of Canterbury, is credited as saying, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. I think when he, when he said that, he probably had verses like this in mind, passages like this in his head. And so if you are today where I was not that long ago, let me give you some fair warning. This text is going to mess with you. It's going to mess with you. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at it in three ways. That outline in your bulletin is there for your benefit if you want it. If not, just leave it. But we're going to look at the situation, looking at what it is that this... this this text is speaking to, we're going to look at the promise, and then we're going to look at the purpose, okay? The situation, the promise, and the purpose. And here's what we're going to find when we do so. We're going to find that God brings us in for those who are out. That when God works in our lives, he brings us in for those who are out. It's very important, very crucial, and very central to this passage, okay? So let's get into this. Let's look at the situation. I love this verse. I mean, I love it. This verse shapes often my prayers for the city. Uh, it, it, it's part of what God used to change how I viewed my calling. It is huge. But to make sense of it, we have to get some backstory because most of us are probably not really understanding what Isaiah is speaking to. And that's okay. I wouldn't expect you to. All right? So remember last week, if you were here, we talked about Abraham. Well, the story of God's people didn't end with God calling out Abraham. It actually goes on. So uh, where we were is humanity had turned from God, right? All of us. And so when we did so, that our natures changed. We weren't just made guilty before God, but our whole nature shifted. Like all of who we are, we were made for dependence on God, and suddenly we became bent towards independence. And for some of us, that looks really moral and good. Where we're doing what we do so that God will like us. We're doing what we do so that good things will happen to us, right? Others of us, it looks very, uh, some of us, it looks kind of immoral, right? We do what we do because we're going to get satisfaction. We don't think God's enough, uh, even if we believe in him. And so we, we do what we do. But for all of us, by nature, we are in that state of independence. And that state of independence in the Bible is called sin, Okay. So God comes to Abraham, and he tells Abraham, uh, who, who wasn't named Abraham at the time, his name was Abram, and he says, uh, it is going to be through your family that I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to heal the world. So 
he, he tells that to Abraham, and then Abraham's family gets really big, which is pretty miraculous, because Abraham was like 100 when his first kid was born. And, and so, uh, but there's, there's a problem going along with this. Abraham's family is supposed to be the solution, but they're as messed up as everybody else. I mean, they've got the right rules. They've got the right procedures. They know how to worship. They've actually been told of God, and God has revealed himself to him, but it's not enough. They're just as messed up as the rest of us. And that's because our problem, our problem as, a, as humanity, is not that we don't have the right rules to keep. Our problem is that we don't have enough information. Our problem is that our hearts are indelibly bent away from God. We've broken relationship with him, and now we're dead set on independence. And so, like I said before, oftentimes trying to keep the rules apart from God just makes the problem worse because our problem is independence. So as God's people keep betraying him and betraying him, the whole course of the Old Testament is one long story of God's people betraying him, him coming to them in a short period of respite, and then they keep going. And as that goes on, they finally reach this thing called exile, where they are sent off uh, into uh, foreign lands, into uh, first Assyria with, with the northern group of, of Israelites, and then Babylon with the, the southern group. Okay? So here, when Isaiah says the tribes of Jacob, which is another way of saying Abraham's family, uh, that the tribes of Jacob need to be raised up, and that Israel, which is another way of saying Jacob, because Jacob's name is changed to Israel, that Israel needs to be brought back, He's talking about exile. He's talking about God's people being sent away, and, he, and God is proclaiming, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to restore them to me. Okay, so let me make this clear. These two groups, or two different ways of talking about the same group, are God's people. He's talking about bring, restoring his people to himself. They've messed up. They're in a bad way, but they're part of God's people. Okay, so you have an exiled people, but you also have a promised deliverer. See, Abraham's family couldn't be God's answer to the problem of sin because his family was just as broken as everybody else. And so God became part of Abraham's family to do it for them. Look there in the beginning of verse 6. He says, it's too light a thing. I love that. We're going to get to that in a second. It's too light a thing. Some of your translations say too small a thing, which is even better. That you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. Okay? So when he says servant there, um, there are multiple ways of, of understanding. We could go in for a long time about how that, that theme of the servant is played out through Scripture. But if, 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 if you're uh, someone who is kind of a regular in church, maybe, maybe you're not a regular in church. But maybe you've been to church during the Easter season, right? You've probably heard... Um, some, some Bible read about the servant. Oftentimes it's, it's in these uh, later passages of Isaiah called the servant songs, um, especially Isaiah 53, the servant who bears the sin of the people. Uh, what, what this is talking about is God raising up a representative, a representative to deal with sin, to answer his promise that he made not just to Abraham, that would be good enough, but also to Adam way back in the garden. To make all things right. So God becomes part of Abraham's family. That's what happened when Jesus came. You see, most of us have this cultural idea. It's really kind of reinforced in our culture. And probably since the 17th, 18th century, this has become more and more a thing. That, that Jesus is just kind of a pretty cool dude. Kind of chill. Said some good things. All about love. Right? We're all in the same place right there. We all get that. Right? The Bible, though, teaches that, though, that, that Jesus was actually God in the flesh. The calculus is weird, okay? I'm not going to say it's not. 
But in Jesus, God took to himself humanity, a human nature, became incarnate. And so he's both 100% God and 100% human at the same time. So the New Testament presents Jesus as this servant that Isaiah is talking about. Here's where this connects to this verse. To bring back God's people from exile. Follow me here, okay? God's people went into exile because of their sin. So if the servant is going to come and bring them back, that means he's going to deal with their sin. So Jesus came to deal with sin. Jesus didn't come to give wise sayings, though he did that. Or, uh, nor, nor did he come to tell us that everything's okay. Because it's not. Jesus came to deal with sin. And he did that by being the servant. And this is a really huge aspect of things here this morning, especially if you're new to Christianity, because this is one of the things that makes Christianity fundamentally different from every other world religion. You see, if, if you take um, Buddha or uh, Muhammad or Zoroaster, yeah, there is some dude named that, okay? So Zoroaster or, um, or Joseph Smith or any, any of these guys, and you remove them out of their system, nothing really changes, Okay? And that is, that is because, it's not, it's not because they're not important. They're important, but they're important because of what they said. They're important because of the information they delivered. But if you remove Jesus from Christianity, you have nothing. You have nothing. And that's because Christianity isn't about sayings. It's about a Savior. God coming and doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Christianity is about grace. It's not about guidance. We don't need guidance. We need grace. Jesus lived perfectly in our place. And he died as we deserved, in our place, bearing the wrath of God for sin. So so here's the deal. This verse is assuming that the work of the servant is to deal with sin. So that he can bring God's people back. But that isn't all. You see that? It's that first part. It's too light a thing. Or again, some of your translations say, it's too small a thing. It's too little bitty to just do that. Now, some of you, some of you here in this room work out. Uh, you know, you, some of you take fitness classes. Some of you actually have a personal trainer. Some of you are personal trainers, okay? Is there anything more annoying than when you go to pick up some weights or go to do something? Somebody's looking behind you going, no, no, no. That's too easy. You can do better than that. Right? There's nothing more annoying than that because you're like, but I don't want to. I want to do what's easy. God is, God is coming along and he's saying, just dealing with the sin of Abraham's family? Nah. Too easy. Too easy. If I just reconcile people to myself who like me, too easy. Anybody can do that. I'm God. I'm God. That's why I love this verse so much. God is basically saying, yeah, yeah, that's too easy. So now you may be thinking, like, what does that matter? Well, let's deal with that as we get to the promise, okay? Let's get the means. God says, I will make you a light for the nations. I hope you can see that little bitty up there. But I will make you a light for the nations, okay? That word nations, um, 
some of you, especially if you grew up with Jewish friends like I did, like you'll know that word because uh, I was always called Goy. Like my, my buddy Mike, Mike Travers would always walk around and be like, well, that explains that you're just Goy, you know. So that, that word Goy or Goyim, it means nations. In the Jewish worldview, you had two kinds of people. You had Jews and you had everybody else, right? You had Jews who God likes and everybody else whom he doesn't. And so let me give you some examples of who these Gentiles, these nations, these Goyim were. Because when Isaiah first said this, there would be very pointed, very pointed examples in the minds of those who heard it. First would be the Babylonians. Great group of people. The Babylonians um, were, were best known for carrying off the, the southern part of God's people, the two tribes of, of uh, Judah and Benjamin, carrying them off into exile. And in doing so, they slaughtered tons of people, raped, pillaged, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, great, great folks. Then there's the Assyrians. Those are the folks who took care of the northern tribes, did the same thing up there, bad dudes, until they got conquered by the Babylonians. Then you have the Egyptians. They're well known by, uh, by, by Jewish folks because they had held the Jews in slavery for 400 years. Then you got the Greeks. Greeks are up and comers. During this time period, they're up and comers. They're not quite on the world scene yet, but they're getting there. And... Um, just not known for anything noble. Which is not to say that any of these groups of people didn't have some gr- good things about their culture. That's not to say that. It's just to say that these aren't exactly folks that you would think to yourself, oh, they endear themselves to God. Not at all. In the Jewish mind, the nations, the Gentiles, are thoroughly jacked up. They either deny God's existence or they outright mock his existence. They're going to deny it or they just mock the idea of him. And God is saying, it is too light a thing, too small a thing for my Messiah, my servant, to just reconcile to me all the people who already like me. I'm going after those that mock me. I'm going after those who deny I even exist. Maybe that's you this morning. I hate to tell you this. God is after you. It may be why you're here. God's after you. Okay? Now, it's important that we get this, because this was spoken hundreds of years before Jesus came. This is not something that some evangelist came up with uh, and then put into the mouth of Jesus. This is what God said would shape the mission of his servant, who then came later. He came for those in darkness, for the nations. And he did so because it would be too small a thing, too easy a thing. If he didn't. Now, let's look at the end. Why did he do this? It says, so that, so that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Okay? Here's a couple of things about this I want us to get. Grammatically, uh, for you grammar nerds, this is a purpose clause. It means this is what, what shows what came before. This is why it came. Okay? Uh, the purpose of making the servant a light for the Gentiles was so that salvation may reach across the earth. But this also uh, implies something that we need to wrestle with. This implies that salvation was necessary across the earth. Okay? To To any of the nations in Isaiah's day, hearing this would have been scandalous. Interestingly so, it is to us also, especially if you're not a Christian here this morning. Here's why. In Isaiah's day, they had what, what were basically regional deities. 
Okay? Little regional deities, each little tribe or city or city-state or even larger empire had their deity. They had their god that kind of functioned over their geographic region. They didn't extend beyond that. It was just for them. And oftentimes these little tribes would end up fighting, which to them also meant that their gods were fighting. And when the, whoever won, the, the, the loser's god suddenly got usurped and went underneath the winner's god. See how that works? So it was, and in those cultures, like in, 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 uh, in Rome, in Paul's day, it was fine if you had your own little deity as long as it existed under the deity of the empire, which is the most important thing. Okay? Everyone gets to exist in the pantheon. And we do this the same today. Now, I know that that may sound offensive. We don't, we don't like to think that we do that because we're not, we're not you know, polytheistic. But we do it through this thing we call pluralism. Pluralism is just tribalism rebranded. Got a PR guy, and it's looking real fresh these days. But it's just tribalism. One group has their religious perspective, right? Maybe they live in the Middle East, and they have their little religious perspective. And our culture says there's this other really backwoods group of people called evangelicals in America, and they have their religious perspective. And then there's folks over in Asia, and they have their religious perspective. And and everyone can kind of have theirs until they come into conflict But in our culture, of course, everyone has to, all of those perspectives have to bow to the ultimate perspective, which is that God is kind of unknowable and unknown. He's like the blind grandfather who gives you a lollipop while you're stealing his wallet because he can't see you, right? He doesn't really care, but he's always giving you good stuff. And as long as your perspective fits under there, we don't have to fight. And we can say we all get along peacefully, but as soon as you mess with that, it's going to be war, right? But what this is saying, what this passage is saying, is that God's salvation needs to reach to the ends of the earth because he is ultimate. He is not tribal. Okay? God is the God of all creation, whether he is acknowledged as such or not. Just like if you're driving towards a brick wall, you can close your eyes and say, I don't believe in that wall as much as you want. But you will when you hit it. Okay? It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. And that's the same thing that God's saying here. God is the God of all creation, whether you acknowledge it or not. And the goal of the servant of Jesus is for, the, is for salvation, the salvation that he came to bring to extend over all of the earth, to all groups. You see that? God is the God, which means that what he says goes. It isn't just true for us. It's true. Jesus isn't just one option. He's the only option. And I know this grates against the cultural assumptions of our day, Okay. But, but look, they are that. They are just assumptions. Okay, follow me. If, if, if you're like, man, I am, when does this end? i got to get out of here. This dude's crazy. Just stick with me for just a second. Because the declaration that there is no religious truth is an unprovable declaration, right? It's an assumption. It may seem self-evident, but it is not. It's simply an assumed truth. And so if you have doubts this morning that Jesus is actually the salvation that is to reach to the ends of the earth, that's cool. You can have those. <laughs> Got nothing but love for you. Like, that's fine. You're not offending me by having doubts. I get that. I would only ask that in the light of those doubts, you'd actually doubt those as well. Let's apply persistent doubt. Okay? Let's apply persistent doubt. What is the basis of that doubt? Is it something proven or is it just something assumed? And if it's assumed, then why assume that and not something else? One last thing on this by way of summary before we get to the purpose. God is saying here that he is sending his servant 
who the New Testament identifies as Jesus, not just to gather his people, but he is sending him for the sake of the Gentiles. He's sending him for those who hate him, for those who want nothing to do with him, for those who have never heard of him before, for them. And he is doing that so so that his salvation might extend across the globe. The mission of God, listen to me, the mission of God lived out through the work of Jesus is to go to those who don't know him, who live in darkness, so that his salvation might extend to them. Okay? Now, that probably comes with a big so what on it, like a nice little ribbon on front of it. So, so let, me, um, let me bring us to the purpose, first with continuing it. So here's something crazy. This isn't actually the last time we hear this verse in the Bible. Okay? In Acts 13... In Acts 13, uh, we, we hear it again. Because Paul is going about the Mediterranean world. He's preaching the gospel. He's making disciples of Jesus. He's starting new churches. And in Acts 13, 47, this comes up again. All right? Paul's in a city called Antioch. He's preaching the gospel. And Luke actually tells us that on the second day of him doing this, like, the whole city comes out, which is probably a little bit of an... It's probably not the entire city distributively, but it's a lot. Okay? So, uh, like, a majority of the city comes out to hear him. Paul's kind of a big deal. Okay. Uh, now, that is to say, when Paul came to cities and he started preaching, normally there were riots and people didn't like it very much. Um, and that generally doesn't happen when we preach the gospel anymore. But anyway, Paul's kind of a big deal. So, the Jews who were there, they see that this whole Greek city has come out to hear Paul preach, to hear them, him preach about the Messiah. And they get ticked off. Like, why are you going to preach God's grace to these kind of people? And Paul turns to them, And he says basically this, we're doing exactly what God commanded when he said, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So what Paul is saying is that the church has taken up the mission of Jesus, which only makes sense, right? Because Jesus barely ever left. Like, he grew up in Nazareth. We know he walked down to Judea, like he did a little walking tour, but that's about it. Like he never really left that stretch of land in the Near East. So saying that Jesus is a light to the nations when you don't ever get around them is, would be a little hard. So the church takes up that mission as Christ's body. So here's the kicker for us. Paul is saying that his ministry, his ministry, listen to me, his ministry of going and preaching the gospel, raising up churches, starting new congregations, that that exists for the Gentiles. For those who don't know God. And so the Jews are mad because they're like, why are all these broken God-haters here? What are they doing in this this church? God's supposed to be for me. Paul says, you don't get it at all. Paul says, no, that, that would be too small a thing. We're supposed to be a light, but we're a light for them. For them. Let me say this clearly. God's mission, the the church's mission, is not to gather the saved. It is not to gather the saved. That is not why this congregation exists. We are not here to gather the saved. It is to reach the lost. God brings us in for those who are out. Now, more than likely, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, there are a couple of objections that are bouncing around your head right now. 
So I want to speak to those really quick. Maybe they're not, but maybe I'm just going to give you some objections that you could have, and then we can deal with them that way. But the, the first of these, I would say, is um, the idea that saying this means you don't care about Christians. And it's not that at all. Uh, that, that's a false dichotomy, okay? When we worship here in this place, when you come to Holy Cross and we, we bring the church into this building, uh, we do so because we were made to. We were made to worship. But we also do it in such a way that what we do is understandable to those who, are out, who, who aren't Christians. When we go outside of ourselves to share the gospel, to serve others, we are living as God made us to live. Okay? We're living actually as God made us to live. So if we aren't doing that, if we aren't, if we aren't as a church encouraging one another to go do that, then we aren't caring for one another at all. We're just letting one another live in our own self-absorption, which some of us would be really happy to do. That doesn't mean there aren't times when we need to be ministered to or to rest, but can I tell you something? Everyone in the church, myself probably chief of all, is a wounded healer. We're all broken and messed up people. That is part of what makes the gospel so appealing we, we don't come into a place or, or pretend that we offer ourselves as models. Like, come and look at how great my life is. Don't you want to be good like me? We are offering Christ. And if you offer Christ to others from a posture that seems that you don't need him, why would they? Why would they want him? So actually, we care incredibly about Christians that we live as God has made us to live. The second, though, is the thought that if you're going to do this, if you're going to be a light for the nations, that means you have to water things down, right? Can't ever get to any hard things. You can't ever get to any deep stuff. Okay? That isn't true either. To see yourself as for others simply means that you have to contextualize what you are saying so that it makes sense to them, right? And this would make sense if we were on mission in France, you're not going to show up in France and start speaking in Mandarin, right? Well, none of us know Mandarin, so, well, a couple of us do, but that's about it. Uh, but you're not going to show up in France and start, more than likely, just start preaching the countryside in English. Probably not going to get it. You have to contextualize what you're saying. And so it simply means that you contextualize what you say, not, not to, to stop saying certain things, okay? So, look, the gospel is deep. The gospel is infinitely applicable. It's not simply something that you come and you dip your toe in and everything's good. The gospel is something all of us need all the time. And you may not realize this, and my guess is you probably don't, even if you've been here a while, and that's probably a good thing. You probably don't realize that we talk about some pretty deep theological things here on Sunday morning. We just don't use technical words that only people who had two or three years in seminary know. We speak to them. We speak to them in ways that other people can understand. Truth is truth, no matter how you say it. But can I tell you that truth doesn't matter if people can't understand it? Okay? So, uh, lastly, here's what I want to do. I want to speak to what it means to live as light to those who are outside the church. Let me give a principle, uh, and then I'm going to give two concrete takeaways. Okay? And by concrete, I mean actionable items for this week. Okay? You're like, Rick, you don't do that. I know. People tell me I live in the clouds too much, so we're getting real. All right? So two actionable items. Here's the principle. You can't be for those who are out if you are stuck being in. 
You can't be for those who are out if you're stuck being in. Let me translate. If all of your life revolves around Christians and you don't know any non-Christians, it is impossible for you to be light to them. You're like, no, no, I'm over here. My life's real sunny. Way over here. Like, have you ever taken a candle and gone deep and dark into a cave and left somebody, like, at one place and just kept walking? Too much distance means that light doesn't get there. Light isn't light if it's not in darkness, okay? It's just not working. So, if this is you, (laughs) if this is you, I want you to do something for me this week. I want you to pick either where you live, where you work, or where you play, okay? And not all of those places are always together, right? Some of us, some of us, we live in uh, one place and we work somewhere else. And some of us play in a third place. We have three different places. Some of us, it's like two places. But here's the point. Pick where you live, work, or play. And I want you to intentionally try to get to know someone that doesn't know Jesus this week. You're like, I don't know how to do that. I've got kids at home. What do I do? Listen, the playground's a great place. Kids are a great inn. I am an introvert. Dreadful introvert. You know who's not? My oldest and my youngest. Sorry, middles. You guys are too. You're like daddy. But the other two... They will meet anyone and talk to anyone. You know what that does? In. Okay, now I go talk to them too, right? So that, if, if, that's, if that's you, guess what? You can still do this. These folks are not a project. I don't want you to see them that way. However, loving someone ultimately will mean loving them towards Christ. We are for them. Okay? We are for them. But that's not everyone here. Some of us here are really great with relationships. We have folks in multiple spans of life. We've got people everywhere. Um, some of us are considered the mayor of our city, right? So that we, we get relationship really well. We know everybody. If you already have tons of non-Christian relationships, here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to pick three. I want you to write them down, and I want you to pray every day this week for those three people that you might have an opportunity to talk about your faith in Jesus or to invite them here. Because you're a light for them. You are a light for them. Let me conclude really quick. God got my attention. I said 10 years ago I would never consider this. I thought the church was just some place we are going to gather people and get them good teaching. God got my attention. In uh, the summer of 2007, I led a team of people to Dublin. And, it, and there was a mission team there who planted churches and they kind of lived out this verse. Uh, they weren't giants of the faith. Not by any stretch of the imagination. They're good folks, but they weren't giants of the faith. But here's, they, they understood something awesome. When God rescues us from our sin, he takes us to work with him. You ever have your dad or your mom take you to work? I remember that. Uh, mom took me a couple times uh, to, when she worked at Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. There was a guy named um, Tom Green there who used to always give me candy. I remember very little about him except he was bald and gave me candy. But that makes you a hero, right, if you're a little. So, uh, you know, maybe while you were there, you got to uh, sit at a desk. You got to feel important. Maybe you even got a pen and a pad of paper, right? Now, some of y'all can't do that. Like, if Michael takes one of his kids to work with him, they're going to crash the plane, and that's not good. Okay, but, but others of us can, can do that. We've had that experience. We know what that's like. We know what it's like to go to work with our parent, feel important, feel honored that we're there in that place, but the reality is we're not doing any work. They're doing the work. We just get to be there with them while they do it. The same is true of us with God. We go with our Father, adopted because of Jesus, to work with him. 
But by his grace, he actually uses our broken efforts to grow his family. Which means that ultimately he brings us in for those who are out. Would you pray with me? Lord, as I say that, even as I say that, I can look around and I know what all of us, many of us are thinking. Some of us right now are wrestling with guilt because uh, we are light that is nowhere near any darkness. And we know that we didn't become light on our own. We know that you made us light, that you are the one who made us light. (laughs) It's not something inherent in us, something good about us, but at the same time, we have been hesitant to get around those who have not yet been made light. We feel guilty. So, Lord, I pray that you would apply the gospel to that. You point out those things not to shame us, not to, not to condemn us, but to invite us to more. Because Jesus has already paid for those things. So, with my friends here this morning who are dealing with guilt, I just pray that you would let them see the glory of the gospel and see this as an invitation to come with you to work. For others of us, we're in this room and we don't believe a lick about Jesus. And I pray that you would help uh, that you would, you would be the one who gives faith this morning. They might see Jesus as a light for them. But God, no matter where we are, I pray that you would send us out on mission to be with you, to see your kingdom expand, to see more and more people come to know you. That they might encounter you, know you, and then show you to others as well. I pray that you would do all this for the sake of your name, that you would be made famous in this city so that your salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.